So tell me how you guys came up with the name Too Much Information for the band. How did we come up with a name? We were sitting around uh, throwing out names as to what we wanted to name the band. Um, and as you know, people, when you get together, often do. We, uh, somebody said something that was kind of really off-the-wall, uh, uh, racy, where uh, we kind of went, ooh, PMI, too much information, you know. And after that, it was like we all looked at each other, and it was kind of like an aha moment where we thought, that's the name of the band. I see from your website that you're not just the best runner-up cover band of Tucson, Arizona, 2006, but you also do a few original songs that you write. And I know, Jennifer, you have the whole band with you in the room, and I want to talk to them too, but first, I'd love to hear what kind of songs you write about. The first song I wrote called Full Disclosure was was really um, a song about coming out um, in my life, um, you know, when I came out to the world and how hard it was. Um, so that was, that was the first song that I wrote. That's a pretty great name for a coming out song. <laughs> Full Disclosure. Um, yeah, that, that's, uh, that's a pretty... Um, yeah, I guess that is a, a cool name for <clears throat> a coming out song, full disclosure. Um, but it can go with a lot of other things. I mean, if you listen to the to the lyrics, it could be ta- you could be it could be talking about um, anything. I mean, coming out like I did, or uh, cheating on somebody's wife or your husband. Really? Yeah, I'm actually having an affair with a married woman. Uh, and the other night, I actually had to go out with her and her husband um, to a bowling alley on the Upper West Side. I'm sorry. <laughs> but when you said full disclosure, I didn't think of that at all. Okay. I mean, I'm not saying you're wrong. In fact, now that you pointed out, you know, my situation could be like the alternative music video for the song. You could even set it in the bowling alley. <clears throat> Excuse me. You could like bowl a strike, and then I could turn to him and say, well, pal, in full disclosure, huh? Right, because like the first verse is uh, living a lie and trying so hard not to be found out. Living a lie is the way to an early grave, no doubt. Living a life in secret, living a life of shame, knowing that the ones you love will never be the same. That's the first verse of full disclosure. Okay, now you're talking. Okay. Living a lie is the way to an early grave, no doubt. Indeed, Jennifer, you speak the truth. And okay. I'm going down. My French girlfriend just moved in with me. PMI. <laughs> <laughs> um, so when you named the band then, when you were sitting around and someone said TMI, what was that in reference to? You know, I can't remember. Michael, can you remember what was said when that prompted the TMI response? Bye, Jennifer. Sorry. Well, I don't know if I remember exactly what it was said, but it was basically, basically like uh, just all the, the different people that are in TMI and are... You know, our, our ethnicities and, and our, our sexual orientations, everybody comes from a kind of a different place. And, um, you know, we're trying to come up with something that really reflected the, the diversity within the band. And, and, you know, all these little things popped up and it's like, no, that don't work. You know, and, it just, and we wanted something that was kind of generic and yet, you know, was still sort of off the wall. And I don't think TMI is generic just because it's in the Urban Dictionary. Well, let me, uh, let me let's talk to somebody else. Okay? Yeah. Okay. Well, here's Tracy. <laughs> and 
Hi, Tracy. Hello. How are you doing? I'm fine. So do you remember the, the conversation the night when you guys came up with the name Too Much Information? Um, we tend to get into these conversations because of our diversity. Um, yeah, you, and, you guys keep bringing that up. Yeah. Well, our diversity is not only um, our sexual orientations and... Um, I mean, we are, we're kind of billed as an LGBT and ally band, so we're a rainbow band, basically. LGBT plus L.I.? I didn't know there was more. What, what, what's L.I.? <laughs> like Lovers International? <laughs> ally, like an um, A-L-L, i.e., like ally. Um, like friends. Uh-huh. It's not an acronym. Uh, you know, I've never heard that, actually, before. Mm-hmm. So for you, did you like this name, or were you like, eh, I, I wish we could have come up with something better? No, I really liked it because it's very descriptive of um, who we really are. We back up on our diversity all the time, but one of our real big strengths is that we like to do vocally, technically higher stuff. And we do Dead or Alive, you know, by Bon Jovi and things like that. And we kind of make them our own, which we call um, TMIing music. You know, we don't always do it the way the cover does it. Sometimes we do it our own way. Really? And, what, is, uh, what does it mean to TMI something? We do cross-dressed man as opposed to sharp-dressed man. And that's kind of one of our uh, signature tunes that everybody wants to hear. Uh-huh. And it's basically about we wrote in words that are about a cross-dressed man. And So this is the actual homosexual agenda. There is one. You bet. <laughs> Good God! What do you what do you do to Bon Jovi? Um, nothing actually. <laughs> all right, all right. Well, let's 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 pass the phone along here. Okay, I'm Sandra Starling. I'm the bass player for Too Much Information. Hey, Sandra. Hello. Now, everyone keeps mentioning that you know that the diversity uh, is is important for you guys to convey. Like when you were first getting started, um, and you were one of the early members of the the band as well. Was the whole, you know, sexual orientation, transgender, did you want that in the name of the band? We still like to make sure people know that we are a GLBT band, but it's TMI who we are. We're just going to play some music and have some fun. <laughs> what were some uh, other band names that you may have had for the band? Oh, we had, we had come up with Transit originally, but there was a Transit, and I think... That's a great name. That is a great name. Kind of hard to let go of the name Transit, because we kind of... We, we actually had some flyers, and we were starting to, like, use the... Make up a logo for it, and then, yeah, we looked up on the web and found out, oh, there's another band called Transit already. I think they had, like, two T's in their name or something, and we had just one T, so... We didn't want to confuse anybody. <laughs> If you're gonna make it in this world, you gotta have a good name. This is why I'm not a hater of parents who name their children strange things like Apple, Prius, Olive Oil, Chewbacca. Because as much as young Chewbacca's gonna get teased on the playground by the Joes, the Davids, and the Iras, he will still come to the realization earlier in life that he is a unique individual here on the planet to do something original, important, and meaningful. Sure, on the surface, Benjamin Walker's a pretty boring name. Actually, it's kind of pedestrian. But one day when I was in the fifth grade, I noticed that it was spelled B-E-N-J-A-M-E-N instead of B-E-N-J-A-M-I-N like the other Benjamins at my school. 
And so I asked my mother, why? And she said, isn't that the way it's spelled? This simple mistake forms the core of my being. Not only did this spelling error convince me at an early age that I was a special, unique individual, it also set me on my true path. The way of the accident, the screw-up, the misunderstanding, and the almost. A few months ago, I was at a party, and I met a beautiful actress, and when I was introduced to her, she put her delicate little hand over her mouth in astonishment and said, Oh my God, you're the guy who does the Theory of Everything radio show. I'm sure I blushed, but I was still able to stammer out in a manly voice. Why, yes, that is me. I'm so flattered you've heard my radio show. But then she put her hand on my shoulder and said, No, 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 I've never heard your show. I just know who you are because my ex-actor boyfriend is also named Benjamin Walker, and you come up every time I try to Google stock him. The Benjamin Walker she was talking about just recently got engaged to Meryl Streep's daughter, shoring up his Google ranking to be sure, and his Hollywood future. But he spells his name B-E-N-J-A-M-I-N. It's so hard to feel special, and the internet only makes it worse. This is why you gotta make sure that whatever you put out there in the world, whether it be a song, a painting, a poem, a website, or a kid, you have to make sure it gets a good name. I promise you. You start something with a bad name, you're not going anywhere but the ash heap of history. Seriously, when it comes to making it big, it doesn't matter how much money you have. It doesn't matter how many smart people you know. If you don't have a good name, you got nothing. I've always put a lot of care and thought into naming things. My first radio program was called Your Radio Nightlight, mainly because it was on at night, late at night. And this was 1998, just before broadband came and ruined everything. I can't imagine doing that show today, knowing that every single stupid bad idea gets archived online forever and ever. I mean, I did a lot of things in that studio in the middle of the night that were just ridiculous. We're talking blatant oversharing, pointless interviews, meandering monologues that were basically ill-conceived homages to my radio heroes Gene Shepard and Joe Frank. Well, I shouldn't be too critical. It wasn't a total disaster. Your Radio Nightlight was a great name. I named my next radio program The Theory of Everything, and I had the luck and fortitude of creating this show just as podcasting got invented in 2004. So all the computer geeks assumed my show was about science, and they all signed up for it. And I sent them fleeing. But somehow I ended up on the radio in San Francisco and Chicago. And I was even briefly being distributed as an NPR edgy podcast. But it didn't last. Some of the bosses were uncomfortable with the fact that I just blatantly made stuff up. So my little balloon exploded before even taking off. But again, it was a great name for a radio show which is why I kept it when I moved to New York City and started doing a music show here on WFMU. And that's what I've been doing for the past two years. But then, 
Last month, I found out that Douglas Rushkoff needed to quit the media squad, and I convinced station manager Ken to let me have the slot, and the super-talented Bob W. took over my Monday morning music show. Everything just clicked into place. But a new radio program requires a new name. I'm putting Theory of Everything back on the shelf. It's time, once again, to come up with another great name. But this was not as easy as I thought it was going to be. For the past few weeks, I've been like a madman. I haven't been able to sleep. I haven't been able to eat. It's been nothing but brainstorming sessions, focus groups, groping in the dark. In fact, I've been so consumed with this naming nonsense, I realized this morning I completely forgot to make a radio program. But all is not lost, dear listener. Because just under the wire, I got it. I have come up with the best radio program name ever thunk up by anyone. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the first episode of Too Much Information. I hope you like it. It's a great name.
on BBC Radio 4, episode one of a brand new comedy series about the idiosyncratic world of tourist information offices. Too much information! By Neil Warhurst, starring Jeff Rawl and Malcolm Tierney. Oh, very generous of the council, this. What is it? An automated tourist information machine. A visitor just presses this button here. <laughs> and it'll tell them what to do in waft. <laughs> it's particularly useful if they're Japanese. We don't get a lot of Japanese. No, but we might if they know there's a fluent Japanese speaker about. Anyway, very clever, this machine. Digital. Speaks 100 different languages. Try kicking it. Ah, you see? French. You'd better watch out, Lucy. It might do your job better than you do. I mean, can you speak splurdy... Swedish? Exactly. <laughs> no, but, but I can speak English, and in the four months I've worked in this information centre, people rarely come from far and wide. They tend to be more local. In fact, they tend to be Brian. <laughs> yes, Brian. Brian! Oh. You can't sleep in here. No, I can't. Racket you two make. <laughs> What's that? It's an automated information point. So now when poor old Lucy's busy with a tourist and she's a bit overwhelmed because another tourist walks in, <laughs> it can take the pressure off. Have we ever had more than one tourist at a time? No. But even then, it'll take the pressure off, leaving you free to do something else, like put your makeup on, pop to the loo. Find a new job. Exactly. <laughs> and while this machine is handling the hordes, what are you doing? Researching local heritage. Like this, my latest self-publication. Give us a look. It's on the lost river that runs through Waft. Where is it? Well, it's lost. <laughs> Too much information. I didn't realise it was so popular. Well, if I'd known if so many people used the title, I might have used a different title. <laughs> My name's Neil Warhurst, and um, I wrote a show for radio about a tourist information centre in the middle of nowhere. Uh, the idea was that it was, a, it was a bit of a hole, a sort of northern backwater where no one ever goes, and they're trying to get more tourists to, to come to the location, so they... Um, they fund a tourist information centre to try and promote all the sights and sounds of of this this place, uh, this fictional place. It's got um, the greatest name, Waft. <laughs> waft or Waft, doesn't matter. Uh, basically, a, um, a young um, girl comes to work there and is sort of the uh, the victim of the eccentric locals and basically their their slightly warped lives. So I suppose in a way it's her. It's too much information for her to deal with. I um, came up with the idea uh, with another writer called Paul Barnhill, who actually acts in the show. He plays Briar. Um, and then I wrote the script. The, um, it was commissioned by a light entertainment department 
um, BBC Light Entertainment, and um, over a period of five months, just after my baby was born, I tried to write these scripts, which was quite hard work because I was very, very tired. Now, you know, in the USA, radio comedy is kind of a thing of the past. You know, uh, we can sell yeah. tickets for maybe something like the Prairie Home Companion 100th year anniversary, but th that's yeah. kind of it. Yeah. But for a new show, you know, uh, for a short miniseries, how do you get an audience in the theater? It's amazing that uh, the BBC, they basically they're recording every, every other night, they're recording a show at Broadcasting House, um, a comedy show, and they advertise it on the Internet or in the press, and they sell out. I mean, this show sold out within within uh, two days of it being advertised. Um, so there's no, absolutely no problem getting an audience. I think there's a lot of people out there who uh, welcome the free tickets. I think that's the key. <laughs> free tickets. It's actually it's a strange thing to write because you, you sort of aim it towards this live audience. And they had a good time. But then I hear it as a recording afterwards, and it just doesn't, it's not... It's not as enjoyable. It's like the fun bit was the live audience. Really? It's quite, I think it's quite hard for an audience. I find it quite hard listening to a live show because I'm not there. I slightly feel I'm missing out on something. Mm. And what, are the, what is the audience watching? They're watching the actors start off all sitting in a line on chairs, and there's five microphones or have a microphone in front of them. And, and whenever, they act a, whenever, whenever they're in a scene... The ones in the scene stand up and approach the mic. So the audience are basically watching people read. But wow. they're doing better than reading. I mean, they're, they're, um, you know, they do interact with the audience a bit facially. So let's talk about the humor. I listened to all four of the episodes, and I did laugh a lot, but I found it surprisingly toned down compared to some of the other UK comedy I'm familiar with, say the work of Armando Iannucci or Chris Morris. Well, yeah, I, I, people have said it's quite old-fashioned which maybe it is uh, in its setting, it's, and it's quite safe. But apart from the Brian's character, I think he's a bit more risque. Um, but yeah, I did, I did have to tone it down. But having said that, I did, BBC did get a lot of complaints about it. Really? Quite a lot of letters. It's, very, it's a very conservative, with a small c, traditional audience in many ways. If you push the boundaries, or the, if you're a bit too rude, you get a lot of letters. Chris Morris would never write something for the 6.30 slot on Radio 4. It just wouldn't work. I mean, it's, he'd be pushed. I've written late-night radio comedy and had to cut quite tame words. Um, radio is a, is a more conservative, definitely. I don't know what, what, whether I can say these words on, uh, on your channel. I think you can. I can. Let's see, what were they? Uh, twat. That one's okay. Um, no, we can't say that one. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, uh, well, I know, I know what it was. The, the word anal was cut. Mm -hmm. I think we can get away with that one, as long as it's not used like, you know, in an in insertion uh, uh, <laughs> context. Right, yeah, yeah. No, it's just a word. <laughs> yeah, yeah, which is interesting, because uh, how does it work then in the UK? Because when you watch a show, say, like The Thick of It, the television show mm. by Armando Iannucci right now, there's just swearing left and right. Yeah, yeah. How does well, this a lot work? Of, believe me, there's a, there's a lot of people in television and radio who watch that show and think, how come they can do that? Hmm. How come they're allowed to do that? I see. Because a lot of people aren't. I see. It's, so it's, it's a special system. It's who you pay. It's, it, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I, in, in terms of radio, they, every script gets read by someone whose job is to check that they're not going to cause too much offense. 
and they get back with notes to the producer, who then passes the notes on to the writer. Mm. So there's a system of um, monitoring. Obviously, you put forward a lot of ideas to, to, to be commissioned um, as a writer. The ones that... Too much information, for example, is much more is a much more tame idea than other ones that I put forward that don't get commissioned. Mm. It's It's the... Yeah, there's not that much interesting going on. How big is the radio comedy scene in the UK? We're talking um, audiences, you know, hundreds of thousands. Yeah, it's popular. It's not as popular as telly. (laughs) It's not a dying medium. Some of my favorite artists, you know, like Armando Iannucci and and Christopher Morris, I know they both started Mm. in radio. But for people like yourself, are you thinking, you know, I want to do live radio comedy for, you know, like 80 years and be the next Garrison Keillor? Or do you see yourself, you know, moving into other sorts of media as well? Um, Other sorts of media, yes, I I would like to, partly because you've got to um, eat, and particularly if you've got a family, it doesn't pay the bills. Hmm. It's not a it's not a, a big budget, and so the writers don't get paid very well, nor do the actors. So, uh, I think to survive, you can't just do radio. My name is Lindsay Drucker. Um, I actually did a radio show on my college station called Too Much Information, and that's SUNY New Paltz, um, which is uh, kind of by Woodstock, upstate. And um, it started about spring 2006. I had a co-host. Her name was Christina Bianco. And the two of us basically did a punk rock, metal, classic rock show. So in between the awesome rocking out, we would just kind of blabber on about everything and anything. The frequency reached from Albany to New York City. So it was like a huge range. And um, we just wanted to let our listeners know that we were here to talk about silly things, about, you know, you know, really important things. Who gets credit for the name? I think we just came up with it together. Like, it was both of us. And, and what did it mean to you? Like, why, did, why were you happy with, with this name? I guess to us, TMI just kind of meant that we were here for our listeners. You know, that we really just wanted people to know that we talk too much. <laughs> and we, we give them too much information about ourselves as well. So we're not just listening to some people, random people behind the microphone. And I guess there's some... You know, unethical stuff about that, but I mean, what's unethical about that? Like, it's nothing like bad, but just as being on the radio, you're supposed to keep a certain amount of anonymity. No, 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 no. That's bad radio. That's bad, bad radio. radio. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, yeah, I guess I was, you know, I I was under a false impression because it really, like, as soon as we started opening up about ourselves, people were just just excited to know us, even though they had never met us. They they knew about our life stories. They knew about our classes and our you know, um, you know, who you liked and whatever. And we'd play songs for certain people. And, you know, if I had a crush on this guy, I would play, you know, him a song and everyone would know about it. And it was just, it was cool. Like putting, it's like blogging, but like live and to a bunch of a million people. So. so so, tell me what campus life like became when you started the show. Were you famous for being on the radio? Did you get like any benefits? <laughs> did like the dudes come after you? Like did all the girls want to be you? No, that definitely did not happen. <laughs> but it was so great. Like it just worked, you know, and you had just that feeling of the fact that this is where you were supposed to be at this time. And um, 
we were, you know, just doing this thing, taking colors, and, you know, you just stop and look for a second and realize that this is great. You know, this is one of the best times in your life. You're in college, you're young, you're, you know, with this person that you're just talking to about everything and anything, and it's just, it's great, you know, it's just, it's a feeling of, like, invincibility. So have you already discovered that it's, like, all downhill from that? <laughs> <laughs> it's hard, you know, to graduate from college and in this awful economy and really not have any job in any media and, you know... So when did you graduate, Lindsay? I graduated in May 2009 um, with a BFA in photography and a minor in communications. You graduated at literally one of the worst moments in American history. Trust me, I know. <laughs> it's nothing short of awful i have to say like i'm living with my parents in a village on long island and um it's hard because they downsized right before i came home so i don't have much room and um it was just the whole the whole thing was a big letdown you know it has nothing to do with them it's just the fact that i um had all these things set up and i worked really hard to get to get them and i just Everything just disappeared in a flash was because of the economy. Like, I applied for everything and anything, secretaries in production offices. Um, I applied for every type of job possible that would even put me in the same vicinity as media. And nothing, you know, there was always somebody else who was more qualified or um, knew somebody who I didn't know. Or, um, you know, it just, it just didn't work out. Um, nothing came through for me. So... And right now I'm working at a new restaurant that just opened down the block from me. I think it's going to be a good place, you know, at least, at the very least, it'll be pretty lucrative. Um, you need to take out all this frustration and anger on the customer. That's my first piece of advice for, yeah. for your, your <laughs> um, new well, job. Really, they are the enemy. You should greet them this way. Welcome, suckers. Yeah, I mean, that would be great. I'd probably get fired, but... Um, Promise me you'll at least try it out. Like, the first time you're feeling a little blue, you just, just say to yourself... Welcome, suckers. Okay, I promise. <laughs> we'll see how it goes. All right. Well, you know, you sound really, uh, A, competent, and, and B, really willing to work. And you should really think about, you know, maybe being the first uh, WFMU TMI intern. What do, you, what do you think of that? Well, although it sounds really interesting and a lot of fun, and I do miss radio so much, I really honestly can't afford it. But, you know, uh, you can see what school you know, benefited you in the past. I mean, you went to the school, you were, you were the model student, and, you know, it didn't really get you anywhere. So maybe, perhaps, spending a little money to come down to Jersey City, you know, and, and do the data entry for, for my show, that might actually benefit you more. Maybe. <laughs> um... changing the name from Theory of Everything. That was a good name. It was a great name, but I think a new radio program, you know, deserves uh, a new name, and I, I really like too much information. So what is, what is different about it? Like, what, what, what does Theory of Everything versus too much information mean to you? Well, we're amping it up, and that's why I really need you to be in the show. I mean, actually, you know, you're one of the inspirations for changing the name because, you know, just as you know, just as you used to come on the old show and tell us, you know, all the crazy things that were going on in Washington, now that you're working in the Obama administration in the Office of Information, I mean, come on, I mean, this is kind of amazing. So, I think, you know, you'd make like the perfect TMI correspondent. 
I don't think I can do that, man. Really? Yeah. I mean, I work on highly classified information all the time. So you think we'd get in trouble if, if, if we put you on the radio? Yeah. Glenn Beck, dude. <laughs> well, what if we just record you and then I get an actor to play you and then we can say that he reports to the chief technology officer and not the chief information officer? Hmm. Okay. So then day to day, you know, what what's mostly what are you doing? Um, at this point, it's almost all cybersecurity stuff. Did you read that article about uh, the Chinese uh, making it snow? Yeah, yeah, when they were doing the weather manipulations last yeah. uh, spring. So when they did that, for three quarters of a second, in Washington, D.C., every computer screen went blue, and all the televisions did like a snow screen. Uh, so it was a message. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, they were they were demonstrating without a doubt that they had complete access and control to all telecom and all internet in the D.C. area and anywhere else, really. But they just tested it in D.C. So so why wasn't this like in the news? Well, most people wouldn't know what it was. It, I mean, if you were just a just an average person and you saw your computer screen go blue for three quarters of a second, and then it went back to normal and everything was fine. You would just think kind of like, huh, you know, and even if everybody in your office did that, you'd all go, oh, well, did you see that? Oh, yeah, that happened to mine, too. Well, everything seems fine now. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, the IT people wouldn't know what it was, whatever. If you were watching TV, you'd think like, oh, it, there was a little bit of a glitch. You know, that stuff happens all the time. Uh -huh. But I mean, in my office, we were we knew what it was. It was a cyber shot across the bow. Okay. Absolutely. It was like exact same thing with the with the cloud seeding. It's like we can make it snow. They were telling us basically We own your internets. We, yeah, we, <laughs> we we can create a cyber storm at will. Yeah. So I don't understand how this is possible. Well, I mean think about it, all these systems became interconnected so quickly. Um, that security has been just trying to catch up with the way these systems proliferate, and it just hasn't done it yet. I mean, this is what we learned about on Battlestar Galactica, you know, that the Cylons could just kind of come in and, you know, wipe everything out at once. I mean, obviously, they're, they're taking precautions against this, right? To be honest, no. I mean, very little. We're, we're trying. We're tr but like I said, we're trying to play in a, an incredible game of catch-up, and we're just way behind. I mean, what what we're trying to do now is go to a different paradigm called cloud computing. Have you heard of that? Of course. Okay, so the idea there is that right now, like you, you know, you have a computer at work, and I have a computer at work. You have a computer at home, and you have different programs on it, right? Uh huh. And so those are those are the most most of the things that you run. You run on on your computer actually. Now there are certain things that you run on the web, like if you have a Gmail account or things like that, there are other programs that you connect to a larger server and those run on the server. Yeah. So you can think of that as like the cloud. It, the concept is that you have everything that's actually an application running on this higher order system that's not on your computer. That's why someone named it the cloud. So it's like sort of above us and you can just connect to what you need. 
but but if this was something that you know the Chinese could hack in and, and start making it snow, I mean, why would why would we be using this? I mean, surely that there, there, there's a way to keep this secure. Well, yeah, definitely. So, so there, you can do it, and in fact, it's more likely that you can make it secure because you know those are major systems. They're they're run by sophisticated IT companies and they're the people that know how to do security. I mean, do you do you have a your do you have to put in a password even to start your computer at home? Uh-uh. Yeah, so most people just don't do it. So those systems are really unsecure and you got, you know, hundreds of millions of people that have their own home computer. If you can shrink that number down and have all the applications up on the cloud, you can provide security. So if we if we provided security, it would be, you know, it would be better. It would be secure and it would be harder for the Chinese to get in. But what's the problem then? If you don't put security on it, then you've made the problem worse because now the Chinese don't have to hack into all those millions of computers to find stuff. They can just hack into the cloud where we store everything now. Okay. So if you don't secure that, it's like taking everybody's information and putting it in a one, one, one easy place to find. Like Wikipedia. Yeah, it's like the Wikipedia for everything that is like supposed to be sensitive and classified and important. But why would something like this be open? I mean, why wouldn't it be secure? Well, it's, it's basically the same mentality we've been seeing with the healthcare debate. You know, it's been going on for months. You have a public option that everybody would have access to health care. Now, why do you think anyone would fight that? Well, there's this group of people uh, that think that this is a go- you know government expansion. It's socialism, all that kind of stuff that they're afraid of. Well, if you want to have a secure cloud computing environment, you have to register. And if you register, that means that the cloud knows who you are because they have to know who is logging in for it to be secure. But it's the same mentality. It's the teabaggers. Yeah. So we have a situation where they're they're opposing us on cybersecurity and on healthcare. And the administration has prioritized healthcare over security. So basically we might be able to go to the emergency room, but our whole entire infrastructure can be destroyed. That is correct. There is one glimmer of hope. One long shot. There are a few lobbyists for Microsoft on the Hill right now that are trying to convince Congress to use something called Office 2010. And if they can sell them on this, they sell to Congress, and Congress is the one that authorizes what we do in the administration, we just might be okay. Not even the Chinese will hack Windows Vista. Thank you.
From Tucson, Arizona, it's too much information. I do a webcomic called Too Much Information. It's about a young geek named Ace who is kicked out of his house by his mother and ends up sharing a, a house with uh, some interesting roommates, shall we say. You know, you're the first thing that comes up when you Google Too Much Information. If you just type in TMI, it's the first thing that comes up. Even yeah. That's even over a company called TMI, but that gives them heartache. <laughs> and Three Mile Island. Even, yeah. <laughs> So what is it that's going on in this strip? My original idea for a strip was a, it was going to be, you know, a young geek moves into a, uh, into a communal-type house with other geeks, and it was going to be a big house. And one of the jokes at one time was going to reveal that one of the flannel-wearing buddies was actually a girl. <laughs> you know, uh-huh. but I got to thinking, 
okay, you know, the, the house full of geeks thing's been overdone, among other things. What is it with too much information and cross-dressing? Uh, well, in simplest terms, the, the theme is Ace is sharing a house with the, his two roommates, the Carly, the cute transvestite, and Rocky, the really big lesbian, and they have one guest after another that uh, adds some color to the story. No, no, I meant what is it with TMI and trannies in general? Well, that's that's just it. Uh, for most guys, when you say TM, you know TMI, anything about transsexuals or transvestites is TMI just from the top. Are you part of the the transgender world? Um, the I guess the closest you could say to me being transgender would probably be in World of Warcraft, as, as I will very happily run a female character in there and dress her up, and uh, I don't pretend to be a girl or anything like that. If anything, I hit on other girls. But <laughs> So let's talk some more about the strip. It's got some of the most strangest-looking computer imagery I've ever seen. How, how do you make it? How do I make the strip? The, at the basis of it, it's a computer generated. Those are computer generated images using a, a program called Poser. Poser is an application where uh, you can take various figures, adjust their appearance, uh, put in background items, uh, set the pose and the posture, uh, expressions, and then it basically creates a graphic image of that scene. At first, I thought to myself, "Wait a minute." I'm playing with electric, electric dolls and dressing them in kink gear. What can I else can I do with this? And then I remembered that I have always wanted to do a comic. I've got all these ideas for gags that I'd like to put up. And so I started with the first strip where Ace is getting kicked out of the house by his mother. Were you ever kicked out of the house by your mom? Um, she might do that one of these days. Uh, <laughs> you're still living there. Um, well, I was out of the. I was in the Air Force during my young adult years. When I got out of the service, uh, I came back to the same area where Mom lives, and she is. Uh, I've been staying with them lately, the last couple of years. She's actually half blind in one eye. She cannot see anything to her left. So I do. Her, I drive her around things like that. So uh, I'm kind of a, a returned, but returned for a reason. Uh huh. Um, so let's talk. Let's talk social life. When you meet a girl that you want to date and you send her the link to this, like what, what usually happens? Um, well, first off, what is this social life you speak of? <laughs> <laughs> as far as you know, girls I want to date, most of them are fictional. But <laughs> I'm actually good friends on, or, you know, over the computer with a girl named Karen Ellis, who does a comic called Planet Karen. Yes, I've seen you write about her a lot. Yeah. And we we chat over line, um, you know, and such like that. And it's, it's it's fun talking to her. And she's got her own problems, and I like to help. I've like to think I've helped her work her way through some of them. But uh, have you ever met? We have never met. Oh, why do you sign your comic strip Obaki? Back when I, in my younger days, when I was in the Air Force, I had a roommate who called me Ghost. I was, this was back when I had a social life, and I was usually gone until it was time to go to bed. And so he never, basically, he never saw me. I was up before he was, and I was, and I got in after he'd gone to bed. I used that for a nickname for a very long time, but, you know, on the Internet, I don't want to be ghost number 256 or 2456 or something like that. 
And so I started looking around for variations on that. I'm a fan of anime, and I was watching one where it was a uh, subtitled version, so it was hearing the Japanese but seeing the English. And there was a reference to a ghost, and I heard obaki. Well, actually, it's obake uh, in Japanese. If you put O in front of a word, that becomes big. So obaka is big idiot, and obake is ghost. So depending on how a person hears it, they might think ghost or big idiot which I think probably applies. <laughs> it's very important to have a good name. Works for me, yeah. <laughs> now, hold on a second. You are the number one too much information on the Internet. You have fans. I would imagine you have quite a number of uh, I've run into, I've, I have run into fans. Because, of course, you know, my hair is... is I, my, you know, I've got my head hair short, and I'm bald on the top anyway. And uh, I've got the same goatee as in that first picture four years ago. And so people recognize me. Uh, I've, you know, went to a recent, you know, to a convention, anime convention here, and people saw me and go, you're Obaki! <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And what was that like? Oh, that's, that's fantastic. What was really cool was uh, the time I, I'd driven down, driven down, back in 2006, I drove down to San Diego to attend the Comic-Con. And there were a bunch of, uh, I wanted to meet some of the web comic artists and, that were there, and I gave my card to Phil Foglio, who is who lives up in Seattle, and he goes, "Ooh!" In other words, they you know, they'd re- he'd recognized me, and it's like that was like the biggest thing because I've always thought Phil Foglio is like the best artist. Who is who's Phil Foglio? He's mostly famous for his comics, uh, Phil and Dixie in uh, Dragon Magazine. That was the Dungeons and Dragon magazine that was out in the nineteen eighties. Wow. Um, he did some other art that I appreciate. I really liked, and uh, so having someone like him actually have seen my work enough to, uh, you know, go ooh when he sees my comic just really kind of was a real thrill. So you've been making this online comic strip too much information for five years now, Andy. That's a very long time, not just in Internet years, but in real-world years, too. Is the goal to make a living from this fantasy creation of yours, or are you going to quit eventually if, if, if you don't? It's, it's real easy to just kind of go, eh, I'm done with it, because I'm, nobody's, you know, there's, nobody's really paying me a wage to do this, there's uh, it's nothing I'm ever going to make a living on. When I was looking at the uh, pages that were being viewed, there would be new readers that get through the first few pages, get to the one where they discover that Carly, the cute girl, is a transvestite, and bam, they're gone. I can see this looking at looking at my stats. So it's like the heck with them. You know, I'm not doing it for them. I'm doing it for me. And there are people that appreciate it, and that helps me keep going. It's almost a case of art for the sake of art. Have you tried donations? I have tried donations. Uh, back in, and, you know, they've come out, the readers have come out come out for me when I've had problems. Uh, when my cat was dying, a lot of people contributed money so I could pay the vet bills. I miss that cat, I'll tell you. <laughs> Hold on a second. Did you ever think of mobilizing your audience to perhaps support the strip itself? I do get um, without asking for it a couple hundred dollars a month. Hmm. There's lots of things I could be doing to uh, probably generate more revenue. Uh, I could make uh, go with the coffee cups and things like that. 
but uh, so if you're doing this then for art's sake, this is something that's very very important to you. Oh, I'd, I'd say it's definitely something I identify with now these days. As far as um, it doesn't uh, preoccupy my life, shall we say? I have time to do other things. Um, you know, if you let me, I'll play World of Warcraft for eight hours straight. You know. Uh, <laughs> But uh, people ask me, do I have a plan for too much information, or do I make it up as I go? And my answer to that is yes. This episode of Too Much Information is called What's in a Name? It was produced by myself, Benjamin Walker, with help from Bill Bowen. Thanks to everybody I spoke with. You can find links to the Tucson, Arizona band. They'd love to do a tour of the East Coast. Book them now. Neil Warhurst's BBC radio program. Lindsay Drucker's personal webpage. Somebody give this kid a job. And Obaki's webcomic. All of this extra information is on the playlist page for Too Much Information at wfmu.org.